Just for a moment, imagine your community became another Ferguson, or Minneapolis, or Louisville, or any American community where police killed African Americans under questionable circumstances. How would you react? How would your city react? How would your government react? These are the questions that we will explore in the coming weeks in Color Lines, from Philip to Floyd, a podcast exploring the American tragedy of race, police shootings, and the search for justice. In 1990, the town of Teaneck, New Jersey, a community renowned as a national model of racial unity and peace, became embroiled in a confrontation over race and dignity and fairness after a white police officer shot and killed a black teenager. Riots broke out. The town engaged in an examination over its racial policies from the police department to the school system. Were the efforts of Teaneck, New Jersey, dating back to the 1950s to build racial harmony real? Why didn't those efforts prevent another tragedy of police killing an African-American under questionable circumstances? Journalist Mike Kelly's book, Color Lines, investigates Teaneck's history and what the shooting exposed about the racial dilemma that America faced then and continues to face today. Now, with Mike and some of the most prominent voices in civil rights and police reform, from U.S. Senator Cory Booker to Congresswoman Karen Bass to the Reverend Al Sharpton and others, we're looking back to try to find the best way to move forward. How did TNET change? Why didn't the lessons learned from the police shooting of Philip Pinnell in TNET teach America how to avoid the murder of George Floyd and others? And we're back with Upward Media Partners. My name is Brittany Hanrahan, and we are back with author Mike Kelly, who wrote Color Lines. Mike, it's great to have you back. Brittany, it's great to be back and good to see you again. Yeah, so much has happened since we last talked, right? Yes, absolutely. There's been a lot of changes. We've now seen the verdict from Officer Derek Chauvin, who, as we know, back last year was under trial for kneeling on George Floyd's neck, which eventually led to his death. And now that we've seen the verdict, what can we expect moving forward? Well, that's a very good question. You know, it's interesting. The reason I chose the, the title Color Lines for my book all those years ago is it it's really comes from a, cro a quote from W.E.B. Du Bois, the famous uh, uh, African-American intellectual. And he said, you know, the, the color line is the, essentially said the color line is the challenge for the 20th century. Well, I would argue that what we're seeing now in the second decade of the 21st century, or as we go into the third decade of the 21st century, is that the color line is still a major challenge for American society. And, you know, we saw a, 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 I think, a positive move here in the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. I think it was obvious to any reasonable person who saw that video that George Floyd should not have been treated that way, that it was inhumane. And I think it was right for uh, a jury to come back with a conviction on all counts of Derek Chauvin. And it was right, I think, for police officers to testify in that trial. That's no small thing. 
but I don't think it's the end of this journey uh, by any means. I think there are enormous challenges for America and for America's police community uh, in going forward and how we conduct ourselves. And how would you compare Philip Pinnell's death to George Floyd? Because they both were very controversial and they both sparked up a lot of different opinions. A lot of people felt that they were uncertain about Philip Pinnell's death and that Gary Spath wasn't necessarily in the wrong. And there was still a bit of argument with, in the case of Derek Chauvin, do you agree that those cases are similar? They're similar in the sense that people in the community uh, not only African-Americans here in Teaneck, but also white folks felt that Philip Pinnell should not have been shot. And I, I, I think the same is, uh, obviously the same is true about George Floyd. What was interesting is that both Philip and George Floyd were not perfect people. Uh, both of them had run-ins with the law before they were shot and killed. But I think the question here is this. Um, with George Floyd, we had an accusation that he was trying to pass a $20 counterfeit bill and that he uh, wanted, did not want to be placed in a police car because he was, he was um, uh, claustrophobic and also that he might have been high on drugs. All of those, all of those elements of, this, of his story uh, may have been true, but it shouldn't have resulted in his death. And those were the same factors that played out here in Teaneck. You know, Philip uh, Pinnell was hardly a choir boy. However, the actions, uh, his actions on the day he was killed should not have resulted in his death. Dr. Janice Adams has different opinions on what we can do going forward, how we should treat each other, and how to avoid another George Floyd or Philip Pinnell. The issue in America right now is a conflict that must be resolved between whether the country is satisfied with the actual oppression of groups of people by one consistent other group of people by virtue of this country's isms, our racism, our sexism, our homophobia, our general history of hatred and oppression, and whether or not we're going to say that we are entitled to our own lives, that no one gets to dominate another person. Unfortunately, in this climate, we have this victimhood of the victimizers who have been teaching each other to accept the false notion that they are the ones being victimized because their way of life is being asked to change. Demands are being made for their way of life to change. But it's so interesting that they never outline the price of that way of life and the fact that the price of that way of life has actually been paid by black people, by Latino people, mostly by indigenous people, by women. Those are the people who have paid the price for that so-called way of life. Dr. Adams continues on to talk about the verdict and what that means going forward. That verdict is still out. This isn't the first time that denied justice was temporarily delayed 
and then righted. And yet what we have now is the disgraceful history of state-sanctioned terror of people of color by the police. And make no mistake about it, that is what it is. The police are an instrument of government. And if the government is allowing its police officers to kill whomever it wants and then say, okay, we're just not going to hold you accountable for that. Let us not forget that the Derek Chauvin verdict was up in the air. It was not guaranteed. And yes, but for the nine minute and 29 second video taken by a teenage girl, we would not have proof. Let us also remember that the police that some people are so adamant about defending, their initial incident report mentioned nothing about what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd. It simply said that he'd had a medical incident. You don't start there. That is not the first time they've done that. But it's the first time that we had such egregious proof that they were lying. Dr. Janice Adams concludes with, do unto others as they do unto you. And what that means in America's society. The Bible also says, along with every other religion, words to the effect of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's time for people to go with that above all else. I take inspiration from the incredible young people, actually of most generations of African-American people and of oppressed people throughout the history of the United States. It is the younger people of every generation who just say, absolutely not. My whole life is ahead of me. You cannot tell me that for the rest of my days, this is what I am to expect and to just to live down to. No. And that is the generation, as was mine, as was my grandparents, who as young people struck out thinking that in coming to the United States, they were coming to a better life from their colonized um, island nation. They thought it would be a better life as they came to the United States, not understanding just how defiantly segregated the United States was and remains. So it it is the young of every generation who hold that line. And it is older people now like me <laughs> who say, I'm with you. I'm doing my part, continuing to do my part, because even if my days are numbered, I want them to be good days. UCLA's Joanna Schwartz informs us about qualified immunity and that it is not the silver bullet to end police violence and police brutality on Blacks and minorities in our country. Uh, ending qualified immunity, though, would not be a silver bullet. It does, is not a magic wand. It would not dramatically um, change police accountability because although it would do these important things, uh, it, it is still true that uh, it is difficult in many parts of the country to find a lawyer to bring these cases, uh, that the standards for proving constitutional violations is very high and the standards are very deferential to the police. It remains true 
that juries rule against plaintiffs in civil rights cases more often than they do in other types of cases. Um, it remains true that officers virtually never have financial or employment consequences um, of these lawsuits, and neither do police departments. Um, and all of those things would continue to be true. So ending qualified immunity, to my mind, is very important. It's one of the most important things that Congress or the Supreme Court or state legislatures could do. Uh, but it is not in and of itself a solution to the problems that we are facing. Joanna Schwartz continues to explain qualified immunity to us and how difficult it is to prosecute police officers using the qualified immunity defense. Qualified immunity has been at the forefront of the news and the forefront of discussion about police accountability and reform. And I think that there's very good reason for its place at the top of discussions about these important issues. Qualified immunity is a defense that the Supreme Court created um, back in 1967 that says that even when a police officer or other government official has violated someone's constitutional rights, they cannot be sued for money damages unless they have violated what the Supreme Court calls clearly established law. And the Supreme Court has defined what clearly established law is in more and more restrictive ways. So now, if you read the Supreme Court's recent decisions, it seems that a person whose constitutional rights have been violated cannot sue an officer for money unless there is a prior court decision from the Supreme Court or a court of appeals that has held virtually identical conduct to be unconstitutional. And the way in which courts of appeals have understood those requirements, uh, there can be very slight factual differences in prior cases. Um, that amount to the law not being clearly established according to the court and the person being denied relief. Qualified immunity does not make any sense as a doctrine. There's no reason that a person's ability, in my mind, to uh, prevail in a case should depend on whether there happens to be a prior court decision with virtually identical facts, so long as the general contours of the constitutional right are established. And the doctrine does a whole lot of harm to our system of police accountability. It means that, first of all, people whose constitutional rights are violated cannot recover against the officers who have violated their constitutional rights. But it does more than that. In addition, qualified immunity uh, is hard to understand, hard to brief as a lawyer and litigate as a lawyer, the way that qualified immunity has been interpreted by the Supreme Court, some, an officer who's been denied uh, the protections of qualified immunity can immediately appeal that in the middle of litigation, uh, which means that dealing with qualified immunity appeals can take years to resolve. Mike Walker, who's had a 30-year career in law enforcement, explains to us the difficulties of being a police officer and the intricacies of the job. Um, I, I finished school, I finished college in 1991, and uh, this the Rodney King event had just occurred, I think in March, I graduated college in May, was at the police academy in July. So it was still very, uh, very new, very raw, very dynamic, and, and a lot of things 
were still in the process of being changed. They hadn't completely changed over yet. Um, Rodney King Institute brought, like I said, a lot of changes to police and we saw use of force training um, begin to change. We saw where we started integrating an, a use of force continuum that was being taught to police officers so that um, there was a use of force that was either accelerated or decelerated based upon the use of force that the uh, subject that we were dealing with was portraying. So if he, you know, if he went up from being loud, being boisterous to acting like he, he might have some kind of physical confrontation, then, you know, police were taught, okay, then you would prepare for uh, an empty hand confrontation. If he had a blunt instrument, you know, you would accelerate through that use of force continuum. Then once the uh, subject was taken into custody, he was restrained, put into handcuffs, that use of force continuum would allow you for decrease that use of force. Um, so that was something that started being taught about that time after Rodney King. In 2021, attorney Kazarosian was appointed as an inaugural member of the Massachusetts Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission by Attorney General Maura Healy. So as far as my own experience in handling or dealing with or being accustomed to policing and police accountability, uh, in my career, I've handled quite a few police excessive force cases, civil rights cases for the plaintiffs. And most recently in Massachusetts, we've now got um, a police reform bill. And part of that police reform bill has provided us with a post commission, which is a police officer or peace officer standards and trainings commission. And I was fortunate enough to be recently appointed as a commissioner by Attorney General Mara Healy, and it's an inaugural position, so I'm very uh, honored and looking forward to the work that is going to have to be done on that commission. I think it's important for people to understand that change doesn't happen quickly. And as we've all seen over the many years, George Floyd is not the only person who has suffered this kind of horror and the ultimate sacrifice to getting us to where we are hopefully heading in terms of civil rights and police accountability. Because just five years ago, you had Walter Scott who was killed and that detective is serving time. So he was held accountable. But in that five year period, so many more people suffered the same results, suffered that same abuse, violation of the civil rights, assaults, murder, incidents that you would think should not have happened after seeing what happened to Walter Scott, many before him and even since. But I think George Floyd sort of tipped it over because we had bystanders there who were trying to make a difference and could not do it. And I think that changed the perspective in a lot of people. How is that going to change policing and police accountability on a state and federal level legally, it is going to take a lot of work. You can't lose the momentum. And it has to start at birth, basically at training. I don't think any changes can be made in policing just as in anything else if you don't start with changing how law enforcement officers are trained, what they learn, whether it's the law on what you can and cannot do, whether it's the practice and what you can and cannot do. But all of this interacts works together, takes time. It's a cultural change. 
And we're talking primarily about what happens with criminal prosecutions, because that's what happened with Derek Chauvin because of what he did. But it doesn't just limit itself to criminal. There's civil liability that is also changing in the state and federal level. So the fact that you would sue a police officer a few years ago was an extraordinarily difficult task to undertake. It still is, but I think this shows people that if you sue a police officer or a police department or you take action for what you believe is misconduct or inappropriate or bad policing, it may not necessarily mean that you have no support for the police or disrespect them, but you need accountability. People have to have consequences for their actions. Otherwise, nothing changes. Nobody learns. Things don't get better. And it's better not only for the potential future victims, but it's also better for law enforcement because nobody wants to be painted with this broad brush of a few officers who may not act appropriately because by and large, police officers are brave, courageous men and women, individuals who are out there to protect and serve. That's what they want to do. And this doesn't help them when they're painted with this broad brush. Congresswoman Karen Bass gives her unique insight to the George Floyd verdict and what it means to the George Floyd Policing Act going forward. The verdict, Derek Chauvin's verdict, on all three counts was extremely important. And even uh, equal to that was the trial and the fact that you actually had police officers who were willing to stand up and break that blue wall of silence and testify with what they knew was right and wrong was critical. It was one trial. I do not think that it indicates any systemic change or um, a fundamental crossroads in our country, it was very, very important, but it's important to keep it within its context. And then we have the sentencing. So we wanna make sure that we get a, the right verdict, but also the right sentencing. And in my opinion, the right sentencing is the maximum sentencing. The maximum sentences for someone who tortured someone to death in public view. Well, the most important thing for us to do, for the general public to do, is to really educate ourselves about our history and about what even systemic racism means. What are the inequities that are in our systems, whether they were intended or not? Looking at housing, looking at education, looking at healthcare, looking at employment. Why are there such disparities? And then I frankly think the most important thing that we could do, more important than any of that, is to just embrace the notion that we all have something to learn about race and that addressing systemic racism does not automatically mean other people are being hurt by the mere idea that you are having a discussion. Right now, we do not know as a country how to even have a conversation about race. So if we could do that as a first step, it would be monumental. Los Angeles attorney DeWitt Lacey explains to us what the verdict means going forward and how it will affect his cases from a legal standpoint. The answer uh, is, you know, uh, might not be as, um, I guess, 
um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to find the right word here. It, it may not be as comforting as one might hope, right? Uh, I think when these type of things happen, these victories, right? A Brown versus Board or, or Education, uh, Roe v. Wade here, uh, where an officer uh, was held uh, live, accountable, right, uh, for the death of, of George Floyd. You know, the hope is that we've turned the corner and we're beyond that now. Uh, and so we don't have to worry uh, that officers are even going to behave this badly. Uh, and if they do, that the district attorneys uh, can uh, file charges and will be successful uh, because the system worked, right? Uh, and sure, uh, in many regards, it is, uh, you know, um, it is, a, uh, I guess, a, a notice uh, of that, right? That uh, the system did work uh, uh, this time. But, you know, I have to say there was insurmountable almost evidence, <laughs> I thought, that was against Chauvin. Uh, and here's one thing to consider, uh, that even after uh, all of that, uh, evidence was presented at trial. Uh, one of the jurors has since, you know, spoken about you know, what was deliberated, you know, in that deliberation room, right? And and uh, talked about, you know, uh, some of the decisions that were made. Uh, he, it was important, I think, to note that almost immediately, 11 uh, of the 12 jurors came to the conclusion that the third degree murder uh, charge was justified uh, and that the prosecution had proved their case. Yet there was still a person. Uh, even after hearing that Derek Chauvin uh, kept his knee on George Floyd's neck after George Floyd stopped moving, even after hearing evidence that Derek Chauvin kept his knee on George Floyd's neck uh, after the medics had told Derek Chauvin that they could not find a pulse, one person still felt a little skittish, I guess, if you will, about uh, convicting him of these charges. Now, eventually, uh, he got through that. Uh, or he or she, I, I don't know, the, the juror didn't say whether it was a he or a she, uh, but that person uh, got through that and decided to go with the conviction. Um, and of course, uh, that uh, reservation and or trepidation about convicting him was again highlighted in the deliberations for the second degree murder charge. Uh, what does this uh, conviction say? I think it says, look, uh, that we uh, as Americans, I think are more uh, in tune to the happenings uh, of police violence as it relates to black folks, uh, black males in particular uh, in America. Uh, does that mean that uh, these things will stop happening? No. Does that mean we're in a post-racial uh, society? Absolutely not. Uh, may it serve as a, a point to highlight uh, for other district attorneys uh, and prosecute, criminal prosecutors around the country uh, that uh, the public will uh, give a conviction when the evidence is justified uh, or when the evidence justifies it. Uh, so uh, hopefully uh, what that does is it signals uh, to prosecutors that uh, maybe it signals to cities and or municipalities uh, that there needs to be some uh, retraining, especially around this issue of positional uh, asphyxia and restraint. Uh, uh, but we can't be certain, you know, uh, we live... Uh, some might say in very perilous times. Uh, and these things and issues have been debated uh, very uh, forcefully and passionately for many decades. Um, I don't expect that that fight is going to end anytime soon, but I do believe that we uh, on the side of justice are winning the war at this point. Boston University School of Law Dean and Professor Angela Owachi Willick 
is Dean and Ryan Roth Gallo and Ernest J. Gallo, Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. A renowned legal scholar, an expert in critical race theory, employment discrimination, and family law. She joined the law school as dean in August 2018. She explains to us what the George Floyd verdict means and how it will change cases going forward. It's, um, it's incredibly difficult, right? So it's incredibly difficult. There are two different groups that make it difficult. On the one side, you have the actual prosecutors. It might be um, the, the, the district attorney um, um, or you know, the, the, the attorney general of a state. Uh, so those people are making the decisions about when to prosecute uh, police officers. Um, and they control uh, processes. The number one, they could make in many states, they could offer an indictment on their own. They could decide I'm going to indict somebody without taking it before the grand jury. In, 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 a, in a number of other places, you, you take places through, but they also control the grand jury process. And the grand jury process, you know, is supposed to be, it's very one-sided. There's no defense ever presented. It's all one-sided. The prosecution presents that side. What's the evidence that we have that suggests that we should go forward and indict this person and bring, a, and bring, uh, bring charges against them? And, um, and it, in fact, that, that process, the grand jury process, is often viewed as so one-sided that people joke that you could indict a ham sandwich, right? Um, and... Uh, and what happens is, even though it's uh, generally so easy that you could indict a ham sandwich, the prosecutors in these police cases, often because they are working with police on a number of these matters, they have to rely on police for, um, uh, for, for testimony, for evidence, right? There is a relationship between the prosecutors and the police, particularly in the same county, same city. And so they often ha are conflicted. Um, and so what they'll do in these grand jury proceedings is that they'll kind of confuse it. In most cases, they'll throw all the one-sided information against the person who's they're, they're trying to indict. In the police killing cases, they'll throw everything out there um, and not really guide the jury, not grand jury and how they want them to go. And then basically set it up in a way um, um, so that uh, it's less likely that the grand jury will want to, to indict. In many of these cases too, often you see that the police officers themselves are testifying before the grand jury, which is something is unheard of, essentially. Most defendants wouldn't want to testify before a grand jury unless you knew that it was going to result in sort of a, some kind of non-indictment. Um, and so um, that's one side. The other side are, are the people, people who become the juries. And so on the one, the other thing that makes it really hard to um, I guess it's less prosecute, I guess, than can, I'm talking about convicting rather than prosecute. So uh, um, it's the, the, the prosecution and the tight relationship between police officers and prosecutors and the way they work together um, for understandable reasons makes it difficult for prosecutors to want to bring charges against police officers. So I think lawyers um, are, are people who can, from the inside out, can, can really critique the structures that I think make it difficult for, um, for prosecutors to want up to bring charges against the police officers who are often collaborating, working with them on various cases. It's hard if you work with somebody, you work with an, a department day in and day out, um, and they're helping you and they're, um, 
gave evidence, they're testifying for people who work in your office. It's hard to then turn around and then want to say, I'm going to prosecute some of these people. And so I think lawyers working to make sure that there are independent commissions or their independent offices that are instead doing the reviewing those cases rather than the actual same entities um, that are working with police officers on other cases, right? So that's one thing is thinking about what are the structures that make it difficult to have um, um, a, a fully fair process um, in these police officer cases, and then really working to redo that structure. I, I think the, the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial is, is important for a number of reasons. It's important because it communicated that there is there are bounds that that police officers can be held accountable for uh, some conduct in this case it was pretty clear um, um it it rocked the whole world not just our nation um and um and and i think um so i think it, it's it's helpful in that way that it provides people some hope um, that there could be justice in um, in in a, in, a, in a police killing case. Um, I would say that I'll start with the negative first, right? So I think in some ways it doesn't change anything at all, right? In some ways it doesn't change anything at all because if you look at the um, the Derek Chauvin case, you've got Keith Ellis, who's the Attorney General of Minnesota, who does a phenomenal job of, you know, bringing together his team along with the team of, of prosecutors in Hennepin County. And they've got a, t a huge team of lawyers working on these, this case. They've put a lot of resources, a lot of hours into this case. Um, and most cases just don't have that count, those kinds of resources poured into them, right? So this, that's, that's unusual already in that regard. You've got, um, you've also got, um, you know, videotape evidence. We've had videotape evidence before, but in addition to having this team of lawyers who are working on it, and you have a prosecutor who actually wants to prosecute and wants to win, right? Um, you've got videotape evidence. You've got a lot of witnesses of all races who are talking about the impact of, of you know, trying to stop the officer in this case. You've got these compelling narratives. You've got a case in which an officer has nine minutes and 29 seconds to change their action, uh, right? And in many of these cases, right, they're, they're more split second, they're quicker decisions, they're not nine minutes and 29 seconds where you can see, and there's usually not somebody with a pockets, you know, their hands in their pocket and smirking while they're looking at the camera, right? So there's also that he's not under duress, he's not having to make a quick decision. In fact, he has plenty of time to think about what he's doing and make a better decision and he doesn't make a better decision. So there are all these factors in the, you know, Derek Chauvin case involving the murder of George Floyd that make this case quite extraordinary, quite unusual. And even in that case, which is incredibly strong, all of us were sitting on pins and needles wondering what was gonna happen. The Reverend Al Sharpton was with the Floyd family when the verdict was read. He explains to us what that felt like, what it meant to the family, and what it means to the community going forward. Was justice served? Will there be peace? We'll let the Reverend explain. When I heard the judge read the verdict of the 
Derek Chauvin case for the murder of George Floyd. I was standing with the family of George Floyd. And as we looked at the screen, because only one member of the family could go in the courtroom, the rest of the family and myself had to be not even in the building for the verdict. We were there for most of the trial. And we were there, at first we were all silent. And then they started shouting in triumph, the family. And I found myself raising my hands and tears coming down my face. And as the tears rushed my cheeks and into my jaw and over into my suit, I thought later about why I reacted that way. And I think I reacted because I remember being with so many families. The family of Amadou Diallo, the family of Sean Bell, the family of Eric Gardner. Yes, the family of Philip Pinnell that never, in some cases, got to a courtroom and some that did and never heard guilty never heard the worth of their dead relative being affirmed by a court of law saying they were valued. This time, at least the verdict underscored that the life taken was a life worth the system holding someone accountable for. That's what the Chauvin verdict meant to me as somebody that's been out here for decades. Not that we are anti-police, not that we wanted revenge, but we wanted the system that we pay taxes to, that we've defended in wars, to affirm the value and worth of black life was that of the same of any life. Therefore, you must pay a penalty when you take that life. We still have a lot of work to do. There are other cases Within two weeks of the Chauvin verdict, I had to do the eulogy at two different police-related funerals, one 10 miles from the courtroom of Devante uh, Wright and the other in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Both of them killed by police. And it shows the work is not over. That's why we are fighting hard for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to become federal law. But it was good to have a ray of sunshine and a sky clouded by the question of how should we deal with policing in America. From Upward Media Partners, we thank you for taking this journey with us. It's been 30 years since Philip Pinnell ran into a backyard and was shot in the back by a police officer. The George Floyd verdict does signify that some change will come, but how much? Will there be another 30 years before we see another significant change? We've spoken to prominent experts in policing, lawyers. It's been 30 years. And New Jersey reporter Mike Kelly, who wrote the book cover lines, who's done in-depth reporting on the Philip Pinnell shooting. We always expect change to come. We always want change to come. Maybe we are the change we're expecting. Maybe there's more that we can do in our communities, with our families, 
with our friends. Treat people how you want to be treated. If everyone were to live by the creed of do unto others as they do unto you, maybe we wouldn't need police. Maybe we wouldn't need security because we would all look after each other. But that's not the case. We do need police and we do need to treat each other better. Ask yourself today, what can you do to be a better person, to have a better community, so that your children and future children will have a world of peace. Of peace.